Welcome to The Rock Church and World Outreach Center. We pray that this message will strengthen and encourage you. Now, here's a message from Pastor Dan Roth. Amen. Amen. Today, as you're having a seat, get your Bibles out and go with me to Acts chapter number 17. This is the story of us. We've been just going through the stories of the book of Acts. This is not just a history lesson. This is a lesson of life for each and every one of us. Last time we were together, we heard about how Paul went from Thessalonica to Berea and how there was persecution coming against him. And eventually that sent him across the sea to a place that we know of called Athens. Paul was sent to Athens. Now, this city is a great city of renown, even to this day. Why? Because things like art, philosophy, language, and education all have deep roots in this city. In fact, much of the things that we do in our society today came from their roots in this place called Athens, Greece. The Olympic Games, government of democracy, these were ideas and things that were founded here. Men of renown like Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato all spoke and taught here in this area. But one historian pointed out that it was easier to find a god than it was to find a man in the city of Athens. I've heard it estimated that there were roughly 10,000 people that lived in the city of Athens, and they had 20,000 carved images of gods in Athens. I don't know if that's true, but it's quite a thought, isn't it? Two to one. And here the Bible reinforces this idea that in a city filled with gods that they miss the one true and living God. Acts chapter 17, I'm going to start in verse number 16. I'm going to read down through verse number 18. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse number 16. Let's take a look at it together. It says in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. Notice Paul, he's there by himself. His companions aren't with him. He's supposed to be being a good boy. He's supposed to be waiting for them. Why? Because everywhere he starts to preach, persecution stirs up. He ends up getting cast out of the city, and these guys are kind of like his safety team. They're having to take him from one place, oh, let's get Paul out of here by night, and they send him to the next place, and then persecution stirs up again, let's send him across the sea. So he's there exposed. He doesn't have any of his companions, but he's so stirred up on the inside because these people are lost, and if they die, they're going to go to hell. And he sees that they're worshiping idols, and it just pains him on the inside so much that he can't help himself any longer. And so Paul does what Paul does, and he goes into the synagogue, and he preaches Jesus. It goes on, he says that he also not only preached Jesus in the synagogue, but look at the rest of the verse, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So this wasn't just a Saturday thing. This wasn't just a Sunday thing. This was something that he was doing every day in the marketplace. Anyone he could find, he was going to tell them about Jesus. He's going to tell them about the life of God in Christ Jesus, that they didn't have to die and go to hell, that they didn't have to be bound in sin and in idolatry, but that they could worship the one true and living God. Verse 18, it says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. He preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. See, Paul was preaching a message of the good news of Jesus Christ. But these people had so many gods that they thought he was trying to proclaim to them foreign gods. Notice it was plural gods, because they worshiped things like virtue, courage, bravery. They worshiped ideas, but they called them gods, the God of love, 
right? The God of war, the, the, the God of uh, the harvest, God of produce and things like that, God of fertility. They had all kinds of gods, the sun and the moon and the stars, the trees and the rocks, the earth and the ground. All of these things they worshiped. And so here they didn't really understand. Now there's two types of people that it identifies in the book of Acts, the Epicureans and the Stoics. See, the Epicurean philosophy was that the chief good was pleasure. They would give themselves completely to their feelings because of that. It was a form of, uh, if you will, a mild form of hedonism, if you know what that means. That was another thing that was deeply rooted in that time frame and in that period. Now, the Stoic philosophy was different in that they believed that the chief good was virtue. But they concluded that you cannot know virtue if you are emotionally involved, so they threw out all feelings. They were also influenced by a group of people called the cynics. Maybe you know them. Some of you guys know some cynics, right? Some of you guys might be a little bit cynical. But one group feels everything, and the other group feels nothing. One's caught up in pleasure, the other one's caught up in pride. And here Paul is in the center trying to bring them together to the knowledge of the one true and living God. But they call him a babbler. In Acts chapter 17, verse number 18, it says that the philosophers criticized Paul And it says, not babbler, but it says that he's a scrap heap learner. I thought that was kind of interesting, a scrap heap learner. See, the original word for babbler could be talking about a little bird hopping along the ground, pecking through all of the stones and all of the sand and finally finding a little seed and then grabbing that seed up to eat it. That was a a, a little babbler. It was a little bird just jumping around, finding seeds on the ground. But it was also used in ancient literature of a man who would follow around in the marketplace looking for people with big carts that would be going by on these cobblestone streets and something would fall off of their cart and he would run up while no one was looking. He would grab it and he would take it and then after a while he would go and he would try and make a living off of that thing. He would sell it for a profit. That was a scrap heap learner. It was somebody who picked up stuff off the ground in order to sell it and make a living off it. They might have gone to the trash heaps. They might have gone to the dumps. They might have gone around town to see if there was anything lying around that they could pick up and they could sell. See, that was the idea. They said, what is this scrap heap learner? They thought Paul was just grabbing a little bit of the Jewish philosophy and maybe a little bit of the Stoic philosophy and maybe a little bit of the Epicurean philosophy. And he was bringing these together and proclaiming to them foreign and new concepts, ideas, and gods. Might have been that they thought that Jesus was one God and the resurrection was another one that they wanted to worship. So here they say, what does this babbler want to say? What does this scrap heap learner want to say? But what they didn't realize is that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And the scrap heap of God is better than the best, latest, and greatest ideas of man. You see, the Bible goes on to tell us that in Athens, they had nothing better to do than to sit around all day and talk about what the newest, latest, greatest idea, concept, whatever the newest thing was. I think we have a couple of things like that. They call them Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Parler. Uh, they call them CNN, NBC, Fox, OAN. They, they just sit around and talk about the latest news. Oh, my goodness. Not much has changed in thousands of years, has it? Still just sitting around talking about new things and not a whole lot's getting done. So they take Paul to what's called the Areopagus. I'm probably murdering that word, all right? It's a Greek word, but it is better known as Mars Hill. Now, Dr. Kobernick was kind enough to share with me some of his vacation photos, and I've got his photo, okay? Now, on the right-hand side in the background picture, you see what's called the Acropolis. You guys probably know that, the Parthenon, right? It's got all the gods all the way around it. And that, from that place, he's looking down 
and you see this crop of rocks on the right-hand side there. There's a big kind of a, a mound of rocks right there, that little hill. That's called Mars Hill. Mars was the god of war. The Romans named their god of war Mars. And so here, that was a place of war. It was a place of blood. It was also a place where they took Aristotle and they tried him, and eventually they executed him because his philosophies and things like that were stirring up people contrary to the ways that they thought that they should be stirred up. There were 12 steps that went up to this hill, and what they would do in the area of Pagus is that they had uh, people, a council, that they would judge the new ideas, and if there was a new God that was going to be brought into their worship, that was the place where they would hear about him. It said that they had a large hourglass filled with water that they would tilt over, and it was about six minutes long for that to go through. And so they had to kind of give a a presentation, give a speech about this God, this concept, this idea, and they would all judge and consider, and then they would either incorporate it into their worship or they would reject it. So here Paul gets brought into the center of their community. He gets brought up with the movers and the shakers, with the decision makers. And here he's able to give this presentation to them, and he takes his stand in that place called Mars Hill where he preaches them Jesus Christ. In fact, the title of today's specific message is Revealing the Unknown God. Revealing the Unknown God. Take a look with me to Acts chapter 17, this time verse number 23. Here Paul is standing on the area of Pagus, and he's making a stand. He's giving his speech. He's got his time. And now this is what he says in verse number 23. He tells them, I, I know that you guys are very religious. Verse 23 says, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. He says, you guys are very religious. Now, isn't Paul a master communicator? Think about it. He didn't come out the gate and say, y'all are wrong. You guys are worshiping everything. What idiots. You guys are so stupid. You got it all wrong. No, he doesn't come out and insult them right away. What does he do? He compliments them. He says, I can tell you guys are very religious. Oh, well, well, yeah, we are. He says, and as I was considering your objects of worship, he knew what they were doing. And yet he doesn't bash him over the head with the scriptures. He doesn't pull out the scrolls of the Old Testament and say, you should worship the Lord your God alone. He doesn't do any of that. He says, I I, I saw something in your worship. I saw something that you guys were doing right. You were worshiping the unknown God. But the one you don't know is the one that I know. And today, I'm going to declare him to you. Now, they would have been familiar with this. In fact, there's a story that there was a plague that was going on and nothing was working. They were sacrificing all these gods and finally a man came and he said, hey, listen, let's take some sheep and you let them out and wherever they lie down, you sacrifice to the unknown God there. Sacrifice those sheep. And the plague was stopped and so they thought, oh, we we might have been offending someone that we didn't know about. There's so many gods. Could be that we don't know someone and we might be offending that person and so, hey, we're going to continue to sacrifice to this unknown God. So there were altars with that inscription that said to the unknown God. Paul sees that and says, hey, I've got something here. I'm going to proclaim to you the unknown God. And when he says that, they probably all leaned in and said, yeah, we we know that. I I put an altar. I put a, a sacrifice on that altar. Nothing was working, and I sacrificed there. Now he's got their attention. Church, I believe that this is a time in our society. This is a season in life where people are leaning in because they don't have the answers. They're wondering why things are happening. 
why there's a plague on the earth, why there's something going on, what is this new thing, there's a, 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 a pandemic going on, and what, what are we supposed to be doing in this hour, why has it lasted so long, they said 14 days to, to turn the curve, right, to slow the curve, what are we doing here, and now it's a year later almost, and we're still in the middle of this thing, 2021 looks a whole lot like 2020, people are seeking for answers, things that we thought were stable and that we were making headway on, all of a sudden last year went backwards, the race uh, divide went backwards. Unity in our nation was, was just slammed, and, and, and things that we thought were stable in our society were turned upside down, and things were happening. The, the government, the, the place that people trusted, people thought that should be a stable position, was all shaken this past year. And there's all sorts of intrigue and all sorts of conspiracy and lies, and things are going around it. And right now, people are looking for answers, and I believe that we can either go out there and we can bash them and say, see, I told you so, or how about this? The one that you're seeking answers from, I'm about ready to drop some wisdom on you right now. Let me tell you about the unknown God. And we have the understanding, we have the knowledge to declare to people about the unknown God. We can tell people the wonderful message of Jesus Christ. See, Paul goes on to preach the gospel in a short form that the TED Talks of today would gush over. And in this short message, he reveals the God that they missed. Today, how is God revealed? If we're going to reveal the unknown God to a lost and dying generation, to a people that are unchurched and de-churched, how are we going to do this? We need to know how to give an answer to those who ask of us. And so, how is God revealed? First thing that we see in Paul's short sermon Number one thing is this, is that creation reveals the creator. In creation, you can actually see the creator. Why? Because if there's something there, and if it's intelligently designed, then guess what? It's got to come from somewhere, right? Somebody had to have planned that. It can't just happen. Oh, but here's what really gets me. Can I just get on a soapbox for a second? Is that all right with y'all? Can I just bare my soul for a second? Can I tell you what bugs me? Can I tell you what gets on my last nerve? Is when I'm driving to my house and I see in someone's front yard this little sign and it says, we believe. And they go out and they outline all the foolish things that they believe in. And one of the things that they say that they believe in is, we believe in science. No, you don't. Because if you believed in science, you wouldn't believe in this one, number one. And if you believed in science, then guess what? You say that the world just happened. You say that evolution is how this all happened. And, and, and when I go and I ask you, hey, how do you think the earth was created? Well, there were these atoms. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where'd the atoms come from? Hello? Where'd they come from? Because I was taught in science. Hello? I was taught in my science class that in the transfer of energy or of matter, that no matter can be created or destroyed. Dr. Kobernick, resident scientist in the place, taught at, uh, was it Etiwana or Fontana? Rialto. There we go. It was one of them over there. Rialto High School. Is that true? The law of conservation of matter and of energy. It is a law, not a theory like evolution. It's a law. In any transfer, any chemical transfer, any transfer of energy, matter cannot be created or destroyed. So then why do we think that two little teeny tiny atoms can smash together and can create everything that we see? 
That takes more faith than believing in an intelligent, almighty God who can speak and planets exist, who comes and he carves out of the earth all of the systems, who creates the plant life and the animal life. See, when I breathe out, plants breathe in, and when they breathe out, we breathe in. We're symbiotic. We're in relationship with one another. There's a food chain. If there's all these intelligent things going on on the earth, seasons and systems and moon phases and, and, and tides and all this kind of stuff going on, then why do we think this just happened? Creation reveals a creator. And if you believe in science, then you have to believe in God. Because God created every scientific thing that we see, understands it, and he's the only one who can reveal it. You should read after Booker Washington. You should read after George Washington Carver. These guys understood this. These guys knew this. And yet we've ignored good science over the years. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and verse 25. Take a, I'm off the soapbox. All right, are we, are we okay with that? Is that good? Just foolish. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. From that position, from that place, you could have seen several temples. Paul is knocking over their deck of cards. <sighs> Blows over. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Verse 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. God gave you everything you have. God created everything. God made everything. Young boy came home from school one day, thought he was so smart because he took a science class. and He said, Mom, I'm going to be an atheist now. She said, oh, is that right? He says, yeah, because the earth just came into existence. She said, where did it come from? She said, no one made it. It just happened. She said, hmm, and she left. Boy thought, I sure showed her. Next morning, he wakes up. The family's all scattered around the house. Breakfast is on the table. Boy comes out, he looks, and he's all excited. He says, hey, who made breakfast? His mom pokes her head around the corner and says, no one did. It just happened. <laughs> if there's a creation, there must be a creator. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 in the New Living Translation, they know the truth about God. Because he made it obvious to them. Verse 20, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. Some of your translations actually say the Godhead. You can see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in creation. You ever had somebody ask, well, what about the person that never hears the name of Jesus? Are they going to die and go to hell? What kind of God would do that? And God says, you're without excuse. You can see Jesus even in what is created. Woo! Oh, my goodness. Wow. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. In fact, uh, just for extra credit for yourself, not for me, not for the church, not with God, but just for yourself, take a read through Romans chapter number one from there to the end and see what happens when you deny God. Just, just, just go ahead and take a look and see what kind of society it would be if we ignored the invisible God that we can see in creation. Just take some time and meditate on that. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about that. See, creation reveals the Creator. They're without excuse. People should be able to know the invisible God.
But the second thing that we see in Paul's short sermon is this, is that humanity reveals the Father and His love. Humanity reveals the Father and His love. Speaking of fathers, I'm reminded of the boy who was working with his father out in the fields, bailing hay. They had the tractor pulling it, and they were getting these big bundles of hay together. And they put them on this big cart, and the boy was old enough that the father said, hey, you know what, son, today you've been practicing enough on the tractor. I'm going to let you take the tractor home. And so the boy said, really, Dad? He said, yeah, go ahead, jump up there, boy. So he gets up there, and he gets the tractor going, and he starts down the road, and he goes, and he comes to a bend in the road right next to somebody's house. But he was getting going so fast, and he was so excited that he didn't realize what was going on, and he kind of lost control for a second. And right there at the bend by this guy's house, he tipped the cart over with all the hay on it, made a loud crashing noise, and the boy's screaming, oh, no, father's going to be so angry, father's going to be so angry. Well, the guy that owned the house right there by the bend came running out, and he said, son, son, what's going on, what's going on? And he says, oh, I tilted the, the cart over, and all the hay's everywhere, father's going to be so angry. He says, don't worry about it, son. I'll help you get it. No, Father's going to be so angry. He says, well, we'll clean it up. It'll be all right. We'll get you on your way soon. Father's going to be so angry. And he realizes the boy's not getting consoled. So he says, listen, listen, listen. I got lunch on the table. Why don't we just take a break? Let's calm down, okay? And why don't you come inside and have some lunch with me, and then we'll come and tackle this together. Oh, but Father's going to be so angry. He just grabs the boy, and he takes him inside the house. And Father's going to be so angry. And they sit down, they have lunch, and the boy starts to calm down. Now, when they get up from lunch and they go back outside, the boy looks at the cart, he looks at the pile of hay, and he goes, oh, father's going to be so angry. And he says, son, where is your father? He goes, under the hay. <laughs> see, in humanity, we can see the father and we can see his love. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 through verse number 28. Let's take a look at it together. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Still speaking of God the creator, but look at what it says. It says, and he is made from one blood. Every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Hold on, hold on, hold on. People have been dividing over this, haven't they? Well, you're black. Well, you're white. Well, you're Mexican. Well, you're Asian. You're Pacific Islander. Any Pacific Islanders in the place today? You had like a bunch of them up here singing. In fact, I think they've taken over our worship team. It's awesome. It's awesome. I love it. But we divide over these things. And yet it's so foolish to divide over skin when our blood is the same. See, God made us from one blood. We can all trace our roots back to Noah and back to Adam and Eve, can't we? All of us. That means that we're kin. That means that somewhere along the way, we're second, third, fourth, fifth, 26 cousins. We all are connected. See, there's no longer a bunch of different races. There's one race. It's the human race. God made from one blood all the nations of the earth. And for us to divide over these things is simply foolish. But also look at this. And has determined the pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. See, there's controversy over this right now. Because that people came and took over this people's land and they should give it back. We should have reparations for this. We, you know what? They were so wrong to do that. And yet the Bible tells us that God, working through history, has created the boundaries of their dwellings. There was a time when there was a place called Prussia. Where is that today? It's several nations, isn't it? Should we go and give it back? But whose was it before them and before them and before them? There was a time where Greece was the world power, but then Rome took over the whole world. So whose is it? It's God's. 
and God determines the boundaries of our dwellings. And God made those things for the pre-appointed time and place. Now, if you have a problem with that, you need to read the next verse. Because God, God didn't just do it arbitrarily. There was a purpose in this. What is the purpose of nations rising, of nations falling? What is the purpose of God pre-appointing boundaries and dwellings and times and seasons? Look at this, verse number 27. So that they should seek... Wait a second. You mean to tell me that these people came in and took over other people's land so that people would seek the Lord? That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. Was it wrong what they did? Yeah, absolutely. Were there terrible atrocities that happened in the midst of it? Yeah, war is ugly. And it shouldn't be, but we live in a fallen world. And God is the one who brings the sword on the earth, and there are times and seasons. Why? So that they should seek the Lord. You know, if everything was peachy keen and we never had a problem, we wouldn't seek God. We would forget about God. And we would think life is just great. We do our thing, eat, drink. Be merry, for tomorrow we die. Yet that's a life that's meaningless and purposeless. And there are times and seasons where the gospel advanced. Why? Because there was persecution, because there was war, because there was famine, because there was hard times on the earth. There were people that would have got comfortable and just sat in their holy huddle. And yet when the problems persisted, they had to get out and they had to get the message out and they had to really live their faith. Guys, I haven't seen people seek God like I have in this past year. Why? It revealed the heart. Some people fell away. But guess what? There was a church that decided that in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of this problem, in the midst of these pressures and trials and divide and political problems, I'm going to seek God. i got to have his will. I've got to live this thing. God did that. God appointed it. Why? Because God's mean? No, because God loves us and he wants to reveal himself in those times he, so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him. But not just grope for him and find him. God's not playing hide and seek. He's playing sardines. He wants you to come hang out. Though he's not far from each one of us. God's in our midst. God's right there. When you're up crying in the middle of the night, God's got his arm around you. When you thought that you were all alone, God's right there consoling you, speaking tenderly to you. You woke up and you just felt happy. God was there dancing with you, having a good time. That's our Jesus. God is everywhere. He's ever-present. You could go up under the heights and you'll find him there. If you try and go to the depths, he's there too. If you cross the sea, then he's there with you. If you make your bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you'll find God there. God is everywhere at all times, filling all things. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He's with us. God is with us. My goodness. Look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. For in him we live and move. And have our being. In him, we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Right there, once again, the mastery of this message is that he quoted their own prophets. He didn't quote the scriptures. They didn't know the scriptures. 
But they respected these poets, and he says, for your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. In other words, if there is a family, if there is one blood every nation, and even though the nations may have boundaries and appointed times and seasons, if God did all that so that we would grope for him and search for him, that we would find him because in him we live and move and have our being, your own poets have also confirmed this, that we are his offspring. That means that God is our father. Wow. God made us all to seek him. And the motivation for creation is love. Because if there's a creation, then there must be a purpose for that creation. And when we see humanity on the face of the planet, when we see mankind, we can see that there was a father of man. But also, if there was a father, then the father loves us. His motivation is love because God is love and all of his activities flow from who he is. That means the creation, that means the humanity, that even means the boundaries and the times and the seasons are all motivated by the love of God. God wants relationship with us. He doesn't want to hide his purposes from us. No, he's hoping that we'll grope for him and that we'll seek him and that we'll find him so that we can have a relationship with him. But the problem is, is that sin breaks that relationship. Which brings us to the next thing is that our sin reveals the need of a Savior. Our sin reveals the need of a Savior. See, the fact that humanity is broken, the fact that we are divided, the fact that we're biting and devouring one another, the fact that there are problems on the earth. Listen, don't blame God for that. Let's blame the fallen world system that we're in. Let's blame the, the fact that we're living in sinful flesh and people make dumb decisions and people make ignorant decisions and people make stupid, willful decisions. There are people who are mean-spirited. There are people who are murderous. And there's not only that, there's a devil loosed on the earth that's the enemy of our soul that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. You want to know why there's problems? You want to know why there's murder? You want to know why there's war and violence and atrocities that are happening? Here's the reason why. Because we live in a fallen world. And we are utterly sinful and lost. And we are in need of a Savior. That's why God sent His Son, Jesus, to identify with us. And Paul outlines this in Acts 17, 29 and 30. He says, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Everybody say man's devising. Come on, say it louder and say it with us online. Say man's devising. See, when we make up our own way to worship, when we make up our own schemes, when we think this is the way it ought to be and we do our way, we have missed God's way. We have missed the mark. That's the definition of sin. And our sin shows us that we need a Savior. There was a story of some men in ancient India who had special abilities the people told them not to use these abilities, and they went out, and one guy had the ability that if he could take a bone, he could create a full skeleton out of it. Another guy had a unique ability that if he had a full skeleton, he could put flesh on that thing. Another man, if he had a full-fleshed skeletal system, then he could put hair and eyes and nails and that sort of a thing on it. And the last guy, if he had a full body, then he could make it animated. And so these guys eventually got together one day, and the people told them, don't do anything. You shouldn't be using this. You don't know what's going to happen. And yet they went deep into the forest in northern India. And there in the forest, one man found a bone and he created a skeleton out of it. Another man took that skeleton and he put flesh on it. Another man took that flesh and he put hair and nails and eyes on it. And the last guy animated it. And it became a tiger and it attacked them. And they all died. 
See, we need to understand that if we do things our way, our devising, our schemes, then eventually our sin will kill us. The Bible tells us that in the book of Romans, that when sin entered, that we die, and that we are now separated. The death is separation, right? We're separated from our body, but our spirit lives on. Sin separates us from the God, and therefore we need a Savior. We need God to connect us. Look at verse 30. It says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. What does that mean? That means to turn. Repentance means that I have a change of heart and a change of mind. I was going this direction. I had my own scheme, my own way. I had my own idea about things, and I'm going this way. But you know what? God calls me, and I hear the word of God. This is not the way. I have another way that's better for you. I change my heart, change my mind, change my direction, and turn 180 degrees away from the way I was going, and now I go God's direction. That's biblical repentance. Repentance is not a dirty word. Repentance is a beautiful word. Why? Because we are to turn from our sin and to turn to God. And if we go our way, we'll die. But if we go God's way, we'll live life in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are all sinners in need of a Savior. We need to turn from our ability and our ways to save ourselves because we can't do it to God's way to save us. But if we reject this salvation, then there's only a fearful expectation in the end. Because the last thing, the last way God reveals Himself is that the end reveals the righteous judge. If there is a beginning, then there's going to be an ending. If there's a start, then there's going to be a finish. And if God is the creator, then at the end of it all, God is the one who's going to wrap everything up, and he's going to tell us what's been right, what's been wrong, what's been good, and what's been evil. We can't make those decisions on ourselves. We need the outside one who's greater than all of us. Therefore, God is the righteous judge. Let's take a look at it in Acts 17, verse 31. It says this, because he has appointed a day. Everybody say a day. Say it again. Say a day. There's a coming day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. See, it couldn't be just that God on his own did it because we would say, well, God, you never knew what it was like to be a man. God, you never knew what it was like to experience the temptation to sin. You didn't know what the weakness of our flesh felt like. God, you're not right. You're unjust. But God would then have to come and identify with us. How? By breaking from his side his own son. And he came veiled in flesh so that we did not know him. And he lived among us, but he lived the perfect, spotless, sinless life. And as Jesus lived among us and lived perfectly but died unjustly, Jesus went to the cross and he experienced us. He tasted death for all of us. And he died, but his death was not a lawful death. Why? Because he did no wrong. Therefore, when he died wrongfully, he broke the power that death had over humanity. And now all who will believe on him, if we will believe on him for our salvation, not on our works, not on our own righteousness, not on our own will, our own way, our own schemes and our own devising, but if we will turn from our way and we will turn to him, then we can be saved from that day of judgment. Why? Because the wrath of God for sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And therefore, if it's on Jesus, then it's not on me. I'm in him. He's the man that God appointed. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one who was ordained of God. Look at this. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. See, Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus raised again to life, broke the power of sin, broke the power of death off of us all. And now if we will believe in him, then we can be resurrected with him. Now, at this point in the message, as Paul starts to talk about the resurrection from the dead, 
The Stoics, the Epicureans, these people believe that you should be released from the body, not resurrected into a new body. They didn't want that. They wanted enlightenment. They wanted something different. They wanted to elevate the spiritual side of things rather than the natural side of things. And so they would either deny themselves, right, no feeling, or they would indulge themselves, all feeling. And so here they heard about this, and it says that some people mocked. They went, see, scrap heap, I told you. That was just something they picked up from the Hindus. That was just something they picked up from the Jews, right? Scrap heap. They, they, I, I'm not doing this. Babbler, little bird hopping around, picking up a seed somewhere. Some guy trying to make a living. We're not, we're not going to play into this. And they, they scoffed. Other people said this. Hey, we'd like to hear you again on this matter. You know what they, they did? They said, we'll catch you on the nightly news. Why? Because they had no intent of actually changing their life. They didn't want to do anything with that. They just were buying more time. They were just doing what they do. They were not impacted. I would imagine a lot of the Stoics said, yeah, we'll see you again, right? That was great. Thanks. Thanks for coming out. We'll see you again. But then it says there were two people, a man and a woman. We don't really know who they are. We know that one was an Areopagite. He was one of the guys of the council that came and listened, heard, and believed, and gave his heart and life to Jesus. Another one was a woman. We don't know if this woman was his wife. We don't know if this woman was just another lady that was from the marketplace that just heard but she believed, and there were others also. In fact, if you broke this down really into three groups of people that are identified in this story, not, you know, bringing in the fourth group of people, which was the people of the marketplace, just the common man, there were three groups of people that Paul addressed, from the synagogue to standing on Mars Hill. First would be the Jews, second would be the Epicureans, and the third would be the Stoics. We would say of them in our day that the Jews were the self-righteous, Right? They were trying to get to God in their own will, in their own way. They were trying to be good enough to earn God's graces and God's favor. Second was the Epicureans. These would be the people that we would say are carnal. They're worldly. They're indulgent. They're just seeking pleasure. And then finally would be the Stoics. The Stoics would be the indifferent, the prideful, the people that say, I don't need that. I can just do this on my own. You cannot enter the kingdom of God, though, without the resurrection power of the king. It can't be on your own righteousness. It has to be based on his righteousness, which was proven by his resurrection. And the carnal are called to repent, to turn from their way and go God's way. There will come a time when our works will be judged. Don't think that you're going to do you, and at the end of your life, then you'll turn and finally accept it. You don't know when your day or your hour is coming. And so God is saying to watch what you're doing, because he is sovereign and Lord of all. And finally, the indifferent are called to wake up. You cannot sit there apathetic and sit idly by and think that everything's going to be okay. There is a day of judgment coming when the Lord will return. And we need to know that Jesus is the righteous judge of all. Thank you for listening to the Rock Church and World Outreach Center. If this message spoke to you, please share it with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find more information at www.rockchurch.com.